If you would join me, let's start off with a word of prayer. That seems like a good thing to do. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for a new day. Thank you that uh, we can gather here. And I, I pray that over the next few minutes that your wisdom would speak through me and that you would open the ears of everybody in this room. I pray that uh, you would make us more like your son, too, each and every day. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. All right. Got a question for you. What is the kingdom of God like? What is the kingdom of God like? Is it large? Is it super small? Is it whatever your deepest desire is? Is the kingdom of God, does it have anything to do with us? Is it coming in the future? Is it just another way of saying, hey, be here now? Is it a place, is it just a nice idea to get us through the day? What is the kingdom of God like? All of these are fair questions. But before we try to answer these questions, we need to have a brief story to kick off the morning. So the year is 1933, 90 years ago, at Oxford University. It is a Tuesday, and you just sat down at one of the many local pubs for a midday refreshment, shall we say. And just like every Tuesday, there's that group of professors meeting in the back room, and they've got their tweed jackets on, and they're reading through stories that they're currently writing or revising. And, and you don't pay too much attention because this happens every single Tuesday. And you overhear one of the professors, his name is Clive, and he keeps telling this story that seems far too imaginative to be of interest to anybody you know. And this other professor named John, he keeps interrupting Clive, and he keeps talking about how you can't escape this story of good and evil. And you come to find out that John is even more crazy than Clive because he's talking about this universe, this universe that he's building. And uh, you realize that he's got dragons and he's got elves and he's got dwarves in this universe and he's a total psycho. But alas, this is just another Tuesday with the literature professors at the Eagle and Child. Now, as you may have already guessed, John is none other than J.R.R. Tolkien, author of Lord of the Rings. And Clive is C.S. Lewis, author of The Chronicles of Narnia. And they were members of a literary club at Oxford called The Inklings. And they'd meet at this pub every Tuesday to read and to discuss their unfinished works. And so as you and I look back, 90 years ahead of John and Clive, we might think that getting to sit in on one of these Tuesday meetings would be profound and life-changing, but at the time, I can assure you that there was really nothing that incredible happening. It was completely ordinary. In fact, there were likely many professors meeting in the surrounding pubs talking about similar things, having very similar discussions. And of course, neither the Chronicles of Narnia nor Lord of the Rings are explicitly Christian books. But, Clive and John were both devout Christians who knew that the kingdom of God wasn't just restricted to Christian writing. And now, in January of 2023, their books have sold hundreds of millions of copies. So their stories, full of temptation 
and trial and sacrifice and love and resurrection, those stories have extended to hundreds of millions, in part because of these Tuesday meetings. So I might venture to say that God has used these stories, written to Christians and non-Christians alike, to help grow his kingdom. Perhaps this is at least in part what the kingdom of God is like. Something very ordinary, impacting the world on an unordinarily large scale for the ultimate glory of God. So if you would, if you've got your Bibles or a Bible app, please turn with me to Luke chapter 13, verses 18 and 19. And if you don't have one of those, it'll be up on the screen. We'll read together. Then Jesus asked, what is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew and became a tree, and the birds perched in its branches. Just last week, we celebrated the arrival of God's kingdom through the birth of Jesus. And our calendars, they revolve around it. We celebrate it, we throw parties, we exchange gifts because of the arrival of the kingdom and the birth of Jesus. And so for many of us, the arrival of God's kingdom is a massive event. It's worthy of a grand celebration. But here, Jesus tells us, first and foremost, that the kingdom of God starts small. Now, to understand what's going on here in this verse, we need to realize that for Jewish people at the time of Jesus, the kingdom of God was a very distant memory of the past. And it was also a long-shot hope for the future. So the idea reminded Jewish people of what used to be during the time of King David when they were one unified, thriving kingdom. But for almost a thousand years, the kingdom had been in shambles. They'd been in captivity. They'd been under foreign rule. They were in constant conflict and so much more. The kingdom of God was a complicated mess. It was a blurry shadow of the past. So if God was going to reestablish this kingdom, it was going to take nothing short of a miracle. So the Jewish people, in order to do this, they were going to need to overthrow the most dominant military in the world. That's Rome. They were going to need a political leader to rise up and surround himself with the most influential thinkers of the time. And then they would need someone to, to rise up and gather the backing of every religious leader in the area. So here comes Jesus announcing the arrival of this very kingdom. But how does he describe it? He says this kingdom starts as small as a mustard seed. And this is Jesus, who was born in an animal's feeding trough, who grew up in a no-name town with a population of about 400 people, who worked with his hands as a simple craftsman, who chose fishermen and sinners and a tax collector as his crew to catalyze and establish God's kingdom. This is Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us in the most humble, most ordinary form possible. Compared with Jewish expectations for the long-awaited arrival of God's kingdom, 
the ministry of Jesus was far too small and unimpressive. So most people around him would have thought, hey, isn't the kingdom supposed to be a mighty display of God's defeat over evil? Isn't the kingdom supposed to get rid of Rome? This guy's miracles are nice, but where is the rest of the story? Where's the rest of the story? But here, Jesus says that the kingdom of God doesn't come with this glorious bang and the defeat of Rome, but rather that it comes unexpectedly, almost unnoticed, like a seed in the ground. And let us not be too quick to dismiss this truth or just breeze past this truth. So many things in the Christian life start small. January 1st, this is exactly the time of year when so many of us try to start some small habits. But make no mistake, even something as small as a daily Bible reading plan or something as small as a regular rhythm of prayer can lead to massive change in the life of a Christian. The kingdom of God starts small. And here Jesus reminds us of this truth. And he stands in direct contrast to the Messiah who was expected to establish God's kingdom. And that brings us to our second point. The kingdom subverts our expectations. What do we mean by this? Well, Jesus keeps telling all these people that the kingdom is near, the kingdom is at hand. But rather than organizing this top-tier militia or surrounding himself with the most prestigious religious leaders, he's chosen a group of no-name fishermen to be his crew to catalyze God's kingdom. And on top of that, he's, actual, he's actually speaking against physical violence. He's, he's managing to make himself an enemy of all the other religious leaders in the area. We could say that by the rest of Israel's reasoning and logic, Jesus' strategy was kind of insane. Israel expected that if God was going to usher in this new kingdom, it it would require military might, religious influence, and political power. In other words, Israel wasn't interested in the kingdom of God. Israel was interested in the kingdom of Israel. Israel suspected that God's kingdom would match up with Israel's needs and Israel's expectations and Israel's agenda. And here is the big question. Are we any different? Far too often, we expect God's kingdom will revolve around us. We live as if God's kingdom is obviously aligned with our kingdoms. I often suspect that the kingdom of God is essentially no different than my kingdom of Matthew. But according to Jesus, God's kingdom subverts those kinds of expectations. And here's how we know that. If the story was up to us, you and me, we would never have the savior of the world be born in a manger. And we would certainly not have him die at the hands of the military he was supposed to overthrow. But thankfully, the story is not up to us. See, just like the nature of his birth in a manger, 
And just like his death on a cross, this parable of the mustard seed is a challenge to our expectations. So here's a quick little example of what I mean. This literally just happened days ago. My wife, Maria, and I were set to fly to Tucson, where I'm from, where my family lives, on Christmas Day. And we were leaving LAX at 7 a.m. And if you've been keeping up with uh, any of the travel patterns lately, all the airlines were drowning in flight cancellations and short staffs because of winter storms, but we were flying to Tucson. It's a one-hour flight, there's no storms there, and we were flying on Southwest, so I was full of confidence. <laughs> it should, in theory, have been a breeze. Well, as we were going to bed on Christmas Eve, Maria said, hey, can we pray over our trip tomorrow? And I'm thinking to myself, there's no need to pray for all these reasons that I just gave. But I prayed, and it went something like this. Dear God, thank you in advance that our travel tomorrow will be smooth, and that the flight staff will be on time, and that nothing will be wrong with the plane, and that we'll be able to celebrate Christmas morning with our family. And just as I was about to say amen, I begrudgingly added, and your will be done, but of course it would be great if we got there on time, and all our plans worked out very well. So basically, the abbreviated version is this. God, grant me my kingdom wishes. Amen. And let's be honest. All of us do this all the time. Well, lo and behold, sorry about that, by morning time, our flight was pushed back. But just by one hour, we could still arrive in time for Christmas breakfast. Mmm. But to make a long story short, that one hour delay eventually turned into a flight cancellation. And Matthew's Christmas kingdom came crashing down. I was so frustrated. I could not believe this was happening. How could this airline charge so much money and absolutely drop the ball on Christmas Day? These are all my thoughts. I was I was inconvenienced, my plans were not going smoothly, and my comfort was about to be sacrificed. And of all the days this could happen, it was happening on Christmas, on my holiday, on my time with family, on my vacation. But thankfully, over the course of our ensuing seven-hour drive, it started to dawn on me that Christmas is literally a celebration that the God of the universe came to us in the most inconvenient form and circumstance possible. If God was present in the feeding trough 2,000 years ago, could he not also be present in my drive on Christmas Day? See, I expected that God's will that God's kingdom would match up perfectly with what I wanted. And I'm not saying that the kingdom of God is against flying on Christmas Day or that in the kingdom of God plans are always inconvenienced. But I am saying that had we not had to drive, I would not have been as tangibly reminded of the reality of Christ coming in a very unexpected and very inconvenient way. The drive was inconvenient 
and long and tiresome and honestly not what I wanted to do on Christmas Day. But that is the beautiful thing. Because the kingdom of God was catalyzed 2,000 years ago in an inconvenient and a long and tiresome and humble way with the birth of the Messiah in an animal's feeding trough. For Christ came in a manner that none of us would would have suspected because the kingdom of God starts small and it subverts our expectations. And finally, the parable of the mustard seed assures us that the kingdom of God is unstoppable. To make sure that we're all on the same page, Jesus has come on the scene and his teachings and his healings have certainly been impressive. But the reality of the situation is this. Almost nobody thought that what was happening in his ministry was the totality of the kingdom. The real question for most people listening to Jesus and seeing Jesus was whether his ministry had anything at all to do with the arrival of God's kingdom. In other words, the life of Jesus at this point was so small and so subversive that people were wondering if this could really be it. Why would the kingdom of God be so small? Why wouldn't God's kingdom drive out the Romans? Why wouldn't the kingdom of God bring financial security? If Jesus was bringing the kingdom of God, where was the lightning? Where was the thunder? Where was the glory of the Lord? And these are fair questions. We all wonder these, these kinds of questions, but here's the answer. Jesus was bringing so much more. See, when Jesus comes on the scene and he doesn't seem to be fixing the problems we think need fixing, we assume he's not bringing a good enough kingdom. But as C.S. Lewis reminds us, We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea, we are far too easily pleased. See, we tend to build little mud pie kingdoms and assume that they're the best kingdom on offer. But you and I both know that getting what we want, that building kingdoms which, were, which revolve around us, those cannot and will never satisfy the deepest longings of our soul. The good news then is that with Jesus, the ultimate, the great, the justice-bringing and evil-defeating kingdom has indeed come. The parable of the mustard seed is not just about the eventual coming of the final kingdom. It is about the certainty that the future kingdom was already present in Jesus's ministry. God's longed-for kingdom had begun. It has started, and it will come to fulfillment. It is unstoppable. You might ask, how can we be so certain? How do we know that the kingdom of God, which starts as small as a mustard seed, will become a great tree? Because Jesus hung on a tree. 
Because when it seemed that Jesus had no power and no influence and no authority over a tree of death, he was actually exercising ultimate power, ultimate influence, and ultimate authority to secure for us the tree of life. Had Jesus just died on the tree, we would have no confidence in a parable like the mustard seed. First Corinthians tells us that if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. But Jesus was raised from the dead, and for that reason, we can be certain that although the kingdom of God may appear unimpressively and unexpectedly and unnoticed, that the final form is present in the first form. Yes, the kingdom starts small, and the kingdom is subversive, but the kingdom of God is also unstoppable because the resurrection of Christ was unstoppable. So, do not be discouraged by the small seeds. Do not be discouraged when the kingdom of God seems far off. Do not be discouraged when your circumstances seem too humble or too insignificant. Do not be discouraged when it seems that the Lord is not coming through or that he is not doing enough. Do not be discouraged when your kingdom comes crashing down around you. Because the kingdom of God, though it starts as small as a mustard seed, will certainly not stay a seed forever. Jesus has defeated death. Let's meditate on these promises about the kingdom of God found in Hebrews chapter 10. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we professed, for he who promised is faithful. The parable of the mustard seed is indeed a promise. The kingdom of God, which starts as small as a seed, will become a mighty tree. That is great news, and it is promised to us. And he who promised is faithful. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that we can trust the promises that you make. Thank you that though your kingdom starts as small and as humble as a little seed, that you are faithful to bring it to its fulfillment. Thank you that it is not up to us to turn a seed into a tree. Thank you that that promise lies with you and you alone. It is in your name that we pray. Amen.